This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we are looking tonight at verses 26 through 39. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 26. Hear the word of God. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no lo- there, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we too would be among those who have faith and preserve our souls. And Lord, part of that uh, faith, expression of it, part of the uh, the application of uh, that faith to preserve our souls is the fact that we're here tonight to be with you, to draw near to you, to be in your word, to be in prayer. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless our time of study in the scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage follows uh, a, a passage coming right before it that is one of encouragement, one of exhortation. Uh, the lettuces there, let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. Uh, since Christ is our great high priest, we should draw near to God. How foolish to have such an, an entryway into the presence of God and to ignore it. So we draw near. Uh, we have... This hope, we have the finished work of Christ. He says, let's hold fast to it. Let's be faithful to it, just as he who promises faithful. And then also, let's consider how to stir one another up or to provoke one another. Strong verb, um, sometimes used in a negative sense uh, of provoking, agitating. But here, in a good sense, to provoke or stir up one another, uh, as he says, to love to good works, not to neglect coming together, meeting together, 
uh, in order to do that. Uh, that's the context in which the, that, that, that encouraging, that stirring up one another takes place. Well, in the first half of our text tonight, he looks at the alternative. If we're not stirring up one another, if we're not encouraging one another, and all the more as you, day, as you see the day drawing near, uh, the alternative he lays out for us in the first half of the chapter, but then things get much more positive again in the second half of the chapter. So if we want to break it up into those two parts, we can look, first of all, he's talking about the danger that we face, but also, he says, the hope that is there. The danger he lays out for us in verses 26 through 31 uh, again, one of these passages we've encountered a number of times in our study of Hebrews uh, that has a pretty strong warning note to it. Uh, we've seen that earlier in, in this in this uh, book in chapter two, verse two, uh, verse one. He says we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And we see it again in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we've encountered these things before, and even there, the necessity of interaction among each other to encourage each other. Um, on the one hand, the reality is, yes, God takes hold of those whom he saves and he will save them. But on the human side of it, we uh, struggle to persevere, to follow Christ, to, to examine our hearts, to deal with sin in our lives. Uh, we don't presume upon the fact that, uh, that we would be saved apart from any evidence in that, to, to, to that that supports that in our lives. Or... Uh, we don't presume that we would be saved in the face of uh, an utter indifference to the things of Christ. Uh, and so on the one hand, as he's, to use one of his favorite words, we do have confidence. On the other hand, that confidence needs to be accompanied by uh, a good dose of self-examination, of self-distrust. Because the fact is, there are kinds of things that you may miss in your life that another may see. And so we come to it yet again, a passage warning that's meant to warn, that's meant to rattle us a little bit. Uh, and yet it comes in the context of encouragement as well. The danger is sinning. As he says, sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Yeah, boy. You know, I could think of all kinds of times when I have sinned deliberately. Does this apply to me? I'm not sure that he's talking so much about intentionally sinning as he is talking about, to use an Old Testament expression, one I want to look at in just a minute, sinning with a high hand. Sinning in the sense of rebellion. Sinning in the sense of uh willfully and knowingly turning against God. Let me, sh- let me show you that passage. It's Numbers 15, verse 30. Yes, there are times when we sin in a way that we might describe as unintentional, 
But there are also times, even as Christians, that we, we sin, we, we know what we're doing, we know it's wrong, but we do it anyway. Now, notice in Numbers 15, um, verse 27 says, if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for sin offering. Priests shall make atonement before the Lord. Again, back in the old covenant system, the human priesthood and so forth. But then verse 30 says, but the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or sojourner, reviles the Lord. That person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord, has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Now, Moses is not describing a person who sins intentionally. That they're suddenly cut off from the people. He's talking about someone who has rebelled, someone who has turned his face against God, someone who has uh, repeatedly and grievously uh, sinned against God, prefers to sin against God and to live in obedience against God. That's the kind of person Moses is saying should be cut off. In other words, excommunicated out of the people of God. Let's look at some of the ways he elaborates on this. So I think he's talking here about a, a, an actual hardened, intentional rebellion that I would say persists. Uh, because we've known Christians who've rebelled, and yet the Lord brings them to repentance. But you would never presume on that. Notice what he goes on to say, some of the ways that this sin takes place. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, that's not saying that, that God can't forgive all kinds of sins or the worst of sins in Christ. It's saying if you turn away from God, if you turn away from Christ, there's no other provision. There's, there's nothing else. To take care of your sin, but the blood of Christ, and you've rejected that, you've turned from that. This is sinning against knowledge. Notice verse 26, sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. They can't claim to be sinning out of ignorance or sinning unintentionally. But this is, is knowing the truth, exposed to the truth, and yet now rejecting the truth and hardened against it. Sinning against knowledge doesn't mean doing something you know is wrong. It means you've heard the truth, you've heard the gospel, and you reject it. You, you are opposed to it. You turn from it. Sinning not just against knowledge, sinning against Jesus. Look at verse uh, 27. If that's the case, there's nothing left but a fearful expectation of judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You know, not, not the broken Christian, but an adversary, an opponent, an enemy. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Old covenant. New covenant. Verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God? Not just turning against the, the, the old covenant system, bad enough, but now having rejected the Son of God himself. And notice what he says, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Has profaned it. Has rejected it as something unworthy of his devotion, unworthy of his appreciation. Interesting language there. Um, you, this may be for, you may have even had this come to mind. First Corinthians 11, uh, famous passage, of course, dealing with the Lord's Supper, uh, where Paul says, "Whoever this is First uh, Corinthians 11:27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, manner will be guilty." Of 
The, ES, the original ESV, the 2001 version, says of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. That word is not there in the original. Literally, it's just will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. I think the revision in 2007, they said will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, which is, which is I think, a, a better translation. Uh, will be guilty in some respect to the body and blood of Christ. Now, I, I think there's something similar going on there to what we find here in in Hebrews. There's there's a making a mockery of it. There is a, a ridiculing it. There is a contempt for it that puts the unworthy recipient, unworthy is not the same thing as sinful, but the unworthy recipient in a dangerous position. Paul says many of you you know are sick and some have even died uh because of this this contempt. For the blood. Well, here he does use the word profaned. Someone who was profaned the blood of the covenant. And he may have an idea toward their participation in the Lord's Supper, which they now reject and have turned from and hold in contempt. The blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So not just sinning against knowledge, but sinning against Jesus. Uh, here as it talks about this, this rejection has spurned. Uh, it could also be read as trampled, as walked on. Uh, as an expression of contempt for, spurn the Son of God, trample the Son of God, uh, and has profaned the blood of the covenant. As, and third, sinning against the Spirit, verse 29, has outraged the Spirit of grace. You know, Paul, we often think about a lot about what Paul says about grieving the Spirit. You know, don't you grieve the Spirit by your sin. That would be bad, that you are causing distress to the, the Holy Spirit who dwells in you by your sin. The sin, by the way, Paul had in mind was disunity, strife among believers, grieving the spirit. Well, the writer of the Hebrews doesn't use the word grieve. He says outrage. <laughs> you outrage the spirit. If grieving the spirit is bad, out, causing outrage to the Holy Spirit of God is, is extremely dire. So the danger comes because we sin against knowledge in this case, sin against Christ and his blood, sin against the Holy Spirit, and sin against God the Father himself. So this is a very anti-Trinitarian uh, situation. He's not mentioned as the Father. He's mentioned specifically as the judge. Look at verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Uh, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those quotations in verse 30 are taken from Deuteronomy 32, uh, by the way, which um, is the Song of Moses. Great chapter, but it goes into warning about the people's apostasy, Israel's apostasy, which is very applicable to what the writer of the Hebrews is addressing here. The potential for apostasy among the people of God, or at least the visible church. Obviously, those who are invisible church will never fully or finally fall away. But those who profess Christ, those who are part of the visible church, may, because they're not regenerate on the inside. Deuteronomy 32 is dealing with that. You get a chance this evening or this week, go back and read through it. By the way, he's quoting there from chapter 32, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, uh, vengeance is mine and recompense, uh, he says, or as the Septuagint, the Greek translation says, which Hebrews is quoting, vengeance is mine and I will repay, which is what recompense means. But you'll notice the next phrase is for the time when their foot shall slip, 
which was Jonathan Edwards' text in his well-known sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the King James Version, which he used, read, Their foot shall slide in due time, uh, which he built that entire sermon on that prospect of, of the, the foot slipping, which with the recent ice we can certainly identify with, that just like that, you know, your foot can slide out from under you and you fall. And he says that is the position that rebellious sinners are in, that at any moment their foot could slip. God could let them die and they would plunge into hell. And that famous phrase, there is nothing that prevents that but happening, but the arbitrary will of an incensed God. Uh, that they don't slide into hell at this moment. Uh, but he's quoting from that same verse that Edwards uh, took as his text, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense, or I will repay. And again, the next verse, the Lord will judge his, his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So there's the danger. Um, the sinning against knowledge, sinning against uh, the work of Jesus, sinning against the Holy Spirit, sinning against God himself, the light that we have, the opportunities that we have, perhaps even professing faith, participating in the Lord's Supper, uh, being involved in the life of the church, and yet rejecting it, turning from it, rebelling against it. Now, if someone does that, is it impossible that they should ever be brought back to repentance? I'd say no. But there's also no guarantee that they would. And they need to recognize the danger in which they place themselves, as he describes it here. Apart from that repentance, they place themselves, uh, as he says, in the hands of the living God as their judge, not as their savior. But, again, the writer here is encouraged. Uh, he, He brings himself to these depths as he warns us. But at the same time, he is encouraged to better things. We saw this in chapter 6, exact same thing. Strong warning, and yet the hope for better things. But recall, verse 32, the former days when after you were enlightened, exactly what he's talking about in the early part of the passage, um, these other things happened that were encouraging, that that produced the opposite uh, effect. Not, not apostasy, but hope. What is that hope rooted in? He mentions several things here. One, that hope uh, that they had and hope that we have should be rooted in endurance, perseverance. Notice verse 32. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. The, the, the expression hard struggle was a word that was uh, taken out of the field of, out of athletics. Sort of implied, uh, you know, as you might in a, in a tough physical struggle in football or basketball or whatever the sport might be, uh, takes an athletic metaphor and uses it here for how they were competing against these sufferings. What were they? Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated because they went to people who, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were in prison ministering to them, uh, people in prison needed that, uh, unless they had means themselves, they could well starve. Uh, the prisons typically didn't take good care of them, so apart from others helping them, bringing them food, watching out for them, uh, it was a, a very uh, difficult situation. He says, you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Uh, we're not quite sure how that happened. Maybe by identifying with a Christian in prison, they were exposing themselves as a Christian, making themselves known, revealing that they too were a Christian, and therefore liable to some sort of 
persecution. Um, but the very evidence of struggling with afflictions, uh, as he says, reproach, uh, the compassion that they had on those who were suffering, this evidence gave hope. And he says, I saw this in you. You know, this was there. This was real. <clears throat> That's one thing. Another thing is there, um, that was evidence. I, I, I was getting ahead of myself. That was the evidence that their lives should. Second is endurance. Look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he quotes from Habakkuk in verse 37, 38. A little while the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Frequently quoted in the New Testament, that great statement, Romans uh, as well. Uh, If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So the first was evidence. The first root uh, of that hope was the evidence uh, of their perseverance, of uh, their compassion, their willingness to suffer for the name of Christ and be with those who are. And the second is actually here endurance. Verse 35. Um, you have need of endurance after you've done the will of God, not after you have, you know, made noises with your mouth about Jesus and lived however, but after you have done the will of God. Not that professing faith in Christ isn't important, but it has to be backed up with the things he's talking about. After you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Uh, because Christ is coming. Coming one will come and will not delay. We live by faith. But, God says, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Jesus said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and then turns back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. And so it's also rooted in the third place uh, in faith. This hope is rooted in evidence. It's rooted in endurance, persevering, hanging on, pressing forward. It's also rooted, as he says, in faith. Verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. He just comes right out and says it. Look, that's not who you are. I've seen too much to think that. Not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What's the opposite of shrinking back here? It's to have faith. It's to trust in the middle of afflictions that God is, is good and God is sovereign. To trust that God is working out his purposes in our lives even when we don't see it or even see how it could be, how he could be doing that. Uh, we don't shrink back. We're not destroyed. But we're those who have faith and so preserve their souls. Now, that word faith uh, is echoed immediately in the next chapter, verse 1. It actually is his segue into chapter 11 uh, with all the various uh, figures that he examines there as to their faith and as to the evidence of their faith in their lives. So verse 39 very conveniently sets the stage then for chapter 11, which, Lord willing, uh, we'll look at next time we get together, at least uh, the first part of it. But we need to go back and look at this passage. We need to both... Recognize the weight of his warning. Um, very severe warning. You know, those who uh, turn from Christ, those who look with contempt on the things of Christ. But at the same time, uh, he encourages, encourages us with these words. Look at what we saw there. Look at what you see there. Look at what's going on there. Um, is a person who turns from Christ and yet comes back, Beyond hope? Absolutely not. 
He's not talking about that. He's talking about the person, person who goes apostate and just lives out their life, dies, rejecting Christ, has no use for Christ, looks on the things of Christ with contempt. The warning is real. We don't want to minimize that. We want to be careful to watch our hearts, have others watch our hearts. The warning is real. But at the same time, the confidence of those who are in Christ Jesus is also very real. And so pray it be true of each one of us, as he says, that we would be of those who have faith. And so preserve our souls. Let's pray. Father, make it so. May it be so. Uh, Lord, we do want to trust in you and preserve our souls. But Lord, we know how frail we are. We pray, Father, that you would preserve our souls. Father, we pray that we would not be self-deceived. We pray that we would have a clear view of our hearts and we'd listen to those who also have a, a good view, better view of our hearts and our lives than we do. Father, we recognize that eternity is at stake. And Father, we pray that in our hearts there would be a deep hunger and thirst for you and for the things of Christ, to worship, to pray, to, to know the word, Lord, to be obedient, to be daily repenting of sin. Father, we pray that these things would be real, that we would see them in our lives. Lord, that we would be willing to suffer in our reputation, that we would be willing to suffer in our worldly possessions because we have uh, a better home, better possessions, an abiding one with you. Father, we thank you for this passage, and we pray, Lord, that you would use it to feed our souls, to draw us closer to you, to keep us walking strongly with Jesus. And we pray it in his name. Amen.